I'm Derek Thompson, longtime writer with The Atlantic magazine on tech, culture, and politics. There is a lot of noise out there, and my goal is to cut through the headlines, loud tweets, and hot takes in my new podcast, Plain English. I'll talk to some of the smartest people I know to give you clear viewpoints and memorable takeaways. Plain English starts November 16th. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray strandum wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Am I excited? I am very excited today. <laughs> My voice sounds weird. Because I get to have an old pal on the show. Uh, someone I had the pleasure and honor of working with years ago in the office. He played, of course, Dwight Schrute. Uh, one of the great, arguably one of the funniest characters in TV history. He's not going to admit that probably. Um, but it's kind of hard to beat Dwight. He's really, really funny. Uh, but he's a very thoughtful person also. And he has a new series called The Geography of Bliss on Peacock. But I also got to work with him in a film, a little film called Jerry and Marge Go Large. Who could it be but Rain Wilson? Welcome to Black on the Air, Rain. How you doing, my friend? Black on the Air, Larry Wilmore. It's such a pleasure to have this conversation. We've been talking about doing this for a very long time. I'm so happy to be here and conversing. I appreciate yes. you coming yes. on. I know you're busy promoting the series and all your other stuff. And, yeah. you know, so thanks for taking the time, man. I was just... Um, you know, when you're such an interesting person, it's just so much fun talking to you. I mean, you're funny and all that stuff. Good, great actor, everything, but you're a very thoughtful person. You know, there's so much, uh, I think a lot of people don't realize is happening under that, under that person, right? Well, I thank you for saying, and so, and I feel the same way about you, Larry, and just looking at the, the depth and width of the stuff that you have produced acted and written for over the years is a testament to that. But yeah, you know, it's, um, you know, I just had this book come out about spirituality Yeah, and in the first chapter is kind of like, why the hell is the guy who played Dwight writing a book on spirituality? And I'm not meaning to like get in the book or anything, but I will say that it's so funny how people expect me to be mm -hmm. like Dwight. And if I voice an opinion, that's not like Dwight, or if I act in a way that's not like Dwight, like people are genuinely, genuinely surprised and a little mm -hmm. shocked yeah. that, wait, Rain is saying something. Dwight would never say that. Like <laughs> and this kind of mass kind of confusion mm -hmm. that uh, the 
the people, the actors that play the characters should be exactly like the characters. Is it's it's an interesting challenge. It is interesting when you, especially in television, more so than film. I think right where people. And maybe because I think you're coming into people's houses, they see it over and over and over, and they're just convinced that, you know, and maybe it gives them comfort of knowing that or hoping that you might actually be that character, right? Uh, maybe so. Yeah. And I think it's, um, I think it's a testament to good acting too. Mm -hmm. Sorry to toot my own horn. No, I agree. People, people can't differentiate between Rain and Dwight and they really think that, I'm like that. And they're just seeing <laughs> yes. a guy that is like that. And they yeah. they found this guy that happened to be like part nerd, part bully. Right. Um, and uh, put him on this TV show and, uh -huh. and that Dwight is just an extension of who I am. So I think people don't understand kind of the artistic process of like, right. Hey, I transform and I play characters and I played a very different character in Jerry and Marge go large and that's I played right. a different character in the office. And that's kind of what I do. It's what we do. Yeah. You had a, a good run uh, before that on um, six feet under. I remember yeah. you were so good on that show. Um, so Dwight was a departure from that, you know? <laughs> sure. Um, do you, do you remember your audition for Dwight? Do you, can do you still remember what, uh, Meeting Greg for the first time and all that stuff. I, I do. As a matter of fact, Larry, I have here the original audition sheet for wow. day one of The Office from Get Allison Jones. Out of town. God bless Number Allison one. for keeping that. Man. I know. She saved it and she gave it to me when the show ended. No, I can't see the names. Tell us what then some of the names so, are. So number one is me, yeah. Rain Wilson. Mm-hmm. I auditioned for Dwight and Michael. My agency was Endeavor. And My time Michael, in was 12. Yes, Adam great. Scott. Adam Scott was number two auditioning for Jim. Wow. Marilyn Rice Cub. We know from 24 and many other shows. Yeah. And she's a terrific actor. For Pam, Hamish Linkletter for Jim. Ben Falcone for Michael. Alan Tudyk for Michael. Wow. Matt Besser from Upright Citizens Brigade. Matt. Yeah, Matt's great. Yeah. Ever Carradine for Pam. Ever Carradine's a terrific actor. I've worked yeah. with her before. And uh, Jenna Fisher, number 13 for Pam. Wow. And Ann Dudek, who also was on Six Feet Under. Yeah. She's been on Deadwood and a bunch of other great shows. She's really good. She was auditioning for Pam as well. That's the first, first 14. That is amazing. That is amazing. Yeah. I have such fond memories of that first season. I tell people about it because... The office became kind of mythic, you know, and the way that people followed it. But the first season, we were like on a little raft in the middle of the ocean, just making a little show. And yeah. people, people had, and it was so much fun, you know, nobody knew what we were doing. And Ray, I, I don't know if you had this experience, but as a writer, people were kind of snotty towards us. Like they, they thought, like people say, they would say, Larry, what are you working on? I'm saying, oh, I'm working on the office right now. Oh, really? Oh, okay. I'm like, what? What the fuck? You know? Because they yeah. uh, they thought we were going to ruin this English classic, you know, and uh, it was just uh, it, it was constant. I would always hear that from people. And I remember Cynthia Littleton, who writes for Variety, I think Hollywood Reporter at the time, did the same type of thing in something that was kind of snotty towards us before it came yeah. out. I couldn't believe it. Um, the snottiness is 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 legendary. Yeah. And it's so funny to me because. Like, okay, there was a great English show called The Office. They did, thir <laughs> they did 13 episodes. They did two, two six-season 
Yeah. And then uh, and a Christmas and then, special. Like, right. And a Christmas special. They did 13 episodes. Yeah. Um, they didn't have to be 21 or 22 minutes. No. They could be 29 or 30 minutes because right. it's BBC, um, which is a significant, you know, so they were a quarter longer each episode. And, uh, and it was great and it was brilliant. And we took some aspects of it and we left some aspects of it. And, but the amount of outrage and yeah. snobbery about the fact that, that we were doing a, a take on a beloved British show. It's like, th- no one's taking the British show away from you. You can <laughs> no. watch it over and over and over it's again. It's still there. <laughs> yes. and, and you know what? Listen, <laughs> folks, win-win. It all worked out, didn't it? There's still a great classic British show. You yeah. can watch it over and over again. And there's a different kind of a classic American show with 200 episodes and you can watch that over and over again. We can all get along. We can all live harmoniously. In fact, in the first season, I still have the jacket from the first season. I think I have a mug somewhere. It, the, it wasn't just called the office. A lot of people don't realize this. The actual title of the show was the office and American workplace. And yes. then, and then they dropped an American workplace in the second season, I believe. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So Greg wanted just, to really just to distinguish it. Yeah. To distinguish it. And I think Greg also really was afraid American audiences weren't so used to like a mockumentary kind right. of thing. That's so true. To yeah. really underline the documentary style and aspect of the of the show, yeah. which was a lot stronger when we started. And you go to like That's season right. eight and nine, and it's <laughs> the documentary cares. aspect has <laughs> been much more out the window. Right. Exactly. So uh so where did uh this Geography Bliss is a fascinating show for me. I love talking about these types of things. Um, I just did a speech, uh, the class day speech for uh, Harvard. I was very honored that they chose me there. And a lot of it I I put in my philosophy of just life and how to get through things, not so much how to succeed because mm-hmm. they're at Harvard. They don't need that to hear from me. But it's really like, how do you get peace? How do you get clarity? You know, these type of mm-hmm. questions. I think mm-hmm. a lot of times, especially young people, aren't concerned with these questions. And a lot of times when you get older, it's almost, it, I don't think it's too late to start asking these questions, but I think many people don't realize how powerful it is to ask some of these questions about well-being, right? Mm. Yeah. You know, culturally we're not engaged as deep as we should be mm-hmm. in kind of like what gives us a healthy, happy life filled with meaning and well-being. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and at the same time, we're in this crisis of this mental health epidemic with young people that is really staggering and is taking lives right and left. It's really mm-hmm. quite uh, severe. Um, now, now, there are a lot of podcasts about happiness and books about, podca- about yeah. happiness and Instagram accounts about happiness and whatnot. Um, but just culturally, um, we've kind of drunk this Kool-Aid that mm-hmm. um, uh, obtaining things, obtaining material comfort is going to make us happy. And right. having a, a good career and a nice house and a family and a lot of stuff is going to make us happy. And mm-hmm. and now there's some truth to that. Family certainly can be correlated with well-being and having, you know, not being under the poverty line can be correlated with well-being, mm-hmm. but but this kind of mad dash to accrue stuff actually is the opposite. It actually makes us less happy. Mm-hmm. Um, struggling to accrue stuff, materialism, 
um, kind of the uh, workaholism. These are things that make us much less happy. And, and yet our whole Western culture is kind of based on it. So it's, it's time for a reinvigoration about, you know, what, what, where we really can find bliss. What drew you to wanting to do a show like this? Were you searching for happiness in your life? Yeah, it's something I've talked a lot about here and there in mm-hmm. my past, like mental health issues that I had when I was in my 20s. I used mm-hmm. to get really severe anxiety attacks. I had depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, addiction issues of, you know, loneliness and alienation. Mm-hmm. And um, we didn't call it mental health back in the nineties. It was just kind of what you did. It's yeah. kind of what everyone struggled with, but we didn't really talk about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I've shared a lot about it and the producers got the rights to this book. So it's based on a book by the great author, Eric Weiner. And the subtitle of his book is geography of bliss. One grumps search for happiness. Mm-hmm. So he went around the world trying to researching happiness. He was one of the first people to kind of look into this idea. It was, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. Is that where those uh, polls first came out of that uh, going to different cultures and rating happiness in different areas? Is that where that came from? Or, or was that something that was going on already? Yeah. I don't know what the timeline was around mm-hmm. that, but that hasn't been going on for a very long time. Oh, okay. I think it's only 10 or 15 years. It's around the same time. I think, mm-hmm. um, yeah, the World Happiness Report. Right, and there's exactly. several others. Yeah, one's out of Denmark and one's out of the Netherlands. And uh, kind of looking at data points and metrics about happiness. And of course, the U.S. is always in like 25 or 30. <laughs> you know, it's, some, it's, it's, it's not the most miserable place, mm-hmm. but it's, it's far from, from being in the top 10. Wow. So we've got something to learn. We can learn from, guess what? Guess what, America? We can actually learn humbly from other countries and other cultures. Let me ask you this though. Do you think that's true or do you think there's maybe a self-consciousness with Americans answering that question? Well, I think there's a self-consciousness for people in any country asking that question. I think they've gotten really good at learning what questions to ask Mm -hmm. to be able to dig under the surface. They don't just go say, Hey, are you happy? They just say like on a scale of one to 10, how Mm -hmm. satisfied you are are you with your work life on a scale Mm -hmm. of one to 10? How satisfied are you with local government and how Mm. effective it might be? There's a lot of metrics for that. Mm. Yes. You add Mm -hmm. it all up and it create these data points about well-being and contentment. Mm -hmm. So, you you know, I'll I'll tell you something. I I don't know a lot of like really happy Americans. (laughs) I mean, I, I'm sorry. (laughs) I don't, I mean, I consider myself happy. I, I, you are. Mm-hmm. You are. I would consider you happy. But yeah. I always have. It's a condition that I've always have had. It wasn't something that I searched for, you know. And it was. I don't know if I would call it a choice, but it was. Uh, it definitely. There were times in my life when I when I knew I had to choose to be happy, and but f- for most of the time, it's not an effort for me. I kind of live, mm-hmm. I like living in the area. It doesn't mean there aren't tough times and that there are things that, of course, that are sad and that stuff. But in terms of a a resting state. Mm. You know, Do you think your parents gave you that? Do you think it was something in your childhood? It's a good question because there's, we're six of Did us. Did you come from a pretty solid family home no, environment? No, my parents got divorced. They fought a lot. And not all of my siblings are the same on that happiness scale. You know, like my mm-hmm. oldest sister, I would consider the complete opposite, you know. Mm. Uh, my brother, who 
um, passed away and lost Mark a year and a half ago, was very unhappy. He struggled a lot. And I mm-hmm. think it actually led to a lot of his health issues. But um, I think for the, I think it's my outlook on life, I think, more than anything else. I don't know where I got it from. Honestly, I don't. Um, some of it may be from my parents, but, you know, they're not like necessarily just real happy people, you know, but they're not, mm. you know, they're not uh, cynics or that either, you know. Mm. Uh, my mm. father always mm. had a wry sense of humor about the world, which always made me laugh. But I don't know. It's just a spirit. Mm. I just have to say that I'm lucky that I've always had that kind of spirit where I'm drawn to the light instead of drawn to the darkness. Oh, that's not, yeah. I mean, I do think that there are some genetic predispositions to mm-hmm. happiness. Um, yeah, I think so I don't too. know, uh, I don't know the science around that so much, but I think they have, have found that kind of mm-hmm. a, it's kind of a, you know, like the people talking about having a resting bitch face, like it's resting <laughs> yes. happiness, right? resting happiness quotient. Yes. My family was very dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a lot of trauma mm-hmm. and then I had those mental health issues. So I've just been very interested in the journey and the struggle, mm-hmm. both for myself, because I've been in therapy for 20 years yeah. and, but also for our culture. Like I, I love being mm-hmm. a, a brand ambassador of, of well-being. I, I, it, I, I really feel for today's young people in their, and their struggles with mental health. It's, it's really, it's horrific. It's a horrific pandemic. Well, what, let me ask you this, because it's such an interesting topic. And like, how do you define happiness? Do you have a personal definition of it? Is it different from maybe what a societal definition of it? Like, what, what would you define as happiness? Well, that's a great question. And even mm-hmm. the word happiness, I really struggle with. Uh, mm. Honestly, Larry, like I... Oh, that's interesting. What do you mean by that? Well... Happiness, happiness itself is residual. It's, it, it is mm. a result of some other things. You can't like, for instance, we live in a country that's life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, how do you pursue mm-hmm. happiness? Mm-hmm. Like, I always use the example, like, you could go on a roller coaster and get some cotton candy and just feel joyously happy, right? Mm-hmm. And you're at Six Flags and you're like, oh, life is awesome. And then you're unhappy and they're like, you know what? I'm going to go back to Six Flags. I'm going to go on a roller coaster and eat some more Mm -hmm. cotton candy. And you can just feel miserable. Like there's, there's very little one can do to kind of like obtain happiness. It's such a, it's so resultant. And there's probably a better word. I'm not, I'm not thinking. Well, let me ask you this. Well, is, should we make a distinction between maybe joy and happiness? Because like joy might be more of an immediate result of an action, you know, uh, like a roller coaster, that type of thing. Where happiness to me is more of a spiritual contentment. You know, it's not. It's not necessarily like a. It's not a sugar rush. It's. It's more of a steady thing. Like for me, happiness isn't produced by an outside force. Happiness is a point of view. I think that's very well said. Uh, I think you're 100 percent right. It starts to get into semantics a little bit. I mm-hmm. do think that joy is a more effective word than happiness mm-hmm. because in that context, I'm saying, you yeah, know. yeah. Because I, mean, yeah. I also think that joy allows for sorrow and that's part of life is mm-hmm. being depressed, having struggles, right. having disappointments, grieving loss. And we need to allow for that so that we can feel joy. Mm-hmm. It's joy lives in, you know, because we have sorrow, we also have joy, right? 
Correct. And, mm-hmm. but I also think the experts in the field of, and I am not one, talk about the word well-being. And I do like that mm-hmm. a lot because I can cultivate well-being. So if I meditate in the morning, that increases my well-being. I won't necessarily be kind of what interesting happy, but I will have mm-hmm. that, that inner sense of like, you know, being grounded, being mm-hmm. connected, feeling satisfied. You know, if I do cold plunges, if I do breathing, work, <laughs> if I, you right. know, there are actions I can take. If I can, I can set mm-hmm. my day. I'm going to, Hey, today I'm going to focus on my well being. So you're a lot of your well being. I'm just making observations here as yeah. you're talking. It seems very physiologically based in some ways, you know, when you talk about cold baths or. So yeah. I think we're different in this sense. My natural resting face mm-hmm. is anxious discontent. I have an anxiety yeah. disorder. Mm-hmm. I've been in a lot of therapy. I've been in 12 yeah. steps. I have to work very hard yeah. to kind of be, um, to have a normal uh, content day. Mm-hmm. I have to do a lot of work around it. I have to monitor yeah. my moods and I have to connect with people and stuff like that. Do you think that like for a lot of people who are like that, and I understand what you're saying, I think my brother was like that too. Like mm-hmm. there's, there's stuff in the way before you can feel like you're at just the starting point. You know what I mean? <laughs> like whether it's those feelings of anxiety or whatever, it's like, I got to get eh, some of this stuff out of the way so I could just get to the starting point yes. of, you know, of where a lot of people already are. They don't have to push through this just to get to this point. You know, I a hundred percent say that in, in, in my book, yeah. soul boom about uh, spirituality that just came out. I, you know, I talk about that, like a lot of the mm-hmm. stuff I have to do on a daily basis just gets me to normal. You know, just right, right, gets me right, to right. functional. It doesn't make me, I'm not all wise. I'm not Gandhi <laughs> yeah. or I'm not some guru. Like I just, it just allows right. me to function. You know, yeah. I, I have a prayer and meditation bench right out this window here. And mm-hmm. I go sit there in the mornings, most mornings. I didn't this morning because yeah. we had a burst pipe in our backyard, but that's another story. But I, you know, if I can just spend 15 or 20 minutes there in meditation, contemplation, prayer, yeah. connection, like it, it, it sustains me my whole day. It doesn't make yeah. me Mr. You know, super wise Buddha guy. Right. No, it just, it allows you to at least, you know, have a, a better connection with, you know, whatever the stimuli is out in the mm-hmm. world, you know, as opposed mm-hmm. to it being interpreted a certain way, because there are all these nerve endings that are, that are mm-hmm. acting a certain way, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's got it. Now that's, it's so challenging when that's going on and your show, which is very, I find fascinating, deals with the more on a cultural yes. uh, point of view, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. is, which is also very fascinating too, how, you know, depending on the culture you live in gives you kind of a different starting point, right? Yeah. Yeah, like for yeah. instance, the second episode we go to Bulgaria. Yeah. And it's one that of that was fascinating. <laughs> yes, yes. Notably one of the most <laughs> unhappy countries in the world. Yeah. But but when you start to understand the historical context of Bulgaria, with that they have been oppressed yeah. um for hundreds of years by the the Romans, then the Turks, then the Germans, then the Soviets, and they haven't kind of had a freedom to just be Bulgarian. And mm-hmm. so they, when you land in the 
airport in Sofia, Bulgaria, everyone is, they are scowling. I mean, it's the most, wow. unhappy. you're like, holy shit, really? these people are fucking miserable. <laughs> and, then, and then you get oh to know them God. and you realize that, no, they express joy, but only in really safe, small pockets. So just, just with a small number of family members or a small number of friends or one little bar or one little area, they, and they're exuberant and joyful and loving. And then they go out in the world and they're scowling and miserable. Um, yeah. And that's a result of their, you know, of their, of their history. And it's so interesting because the first episode you were in Iceland and it's like the opposite, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It seems so like free and easy there and people are just kind of uh, culturally taught that that's how they should be or not worry about things, you know, what was it, what was that like to be in those? Can you compare those two and what it felt like for you? I mean, it's so funny because Europe is so small, like the distance yeah. between like Sofia and Reykjavik, you know, it's like a four hour flight or something like that. It's, you know, it's like flying from Phoenix to Chicago and you're in <laughs> yeah, two right. totally different cultures yeah. and yeah. you're 100% right like in Iceland it's all about personal expression people it's the mm -hmm. most it's the most eclectic group of folks you've ever met that are they're writers and singers and artists and everyone mm. has multiple everyone is doing multiple things like you never just meet someone and they're an accountant it's like mm -hmm. I'm an accountant and I'm in a reggae band or that's I'm hilarious a, you know I'm a school teacher and I'm a installation artist and I'm uh, I'm a farmer and I'm also a social a uh, activist or whatever and because they feel and this is a big part of Iceland they feel so protected mm -hmm. by their government so they there is trust in government belief in mm -hmm. government they feel like they've got a safety net their healthcare is taken care of, their education is taken care of, and they have this kind of trust in their fellow Icelanders, then they're mm -hmm. able to let their freak flag fly. So, to speak. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and you think it's interesting. So Bulgaria, because their government is so corrupt, totally corrupt um, and has let them down oh. so much. It's almost the, you know, when people, I was so struck by how corruption is just an accepted thing. It's not like, People are fighting corruption. People have embraced corruption. A hundred percent right. It's, um, I heard stories of corruption in Bulgaria that would just curdle your, your blood. Really? Tell us um, about Like what? Well, like there were these skateboard uh, punks that we hung out with, skate punks, yeah. that really when they were first doing skateboarding and making skate videos and skate magazines in Bulgaria, that the Soviets would crack down. They would get arrested, man. They would get tortured, you know, yeah, because skateboarding. It, it was viewed as anti-authoritarian, you know, which in some ways skateboarding kind of has that kind of punk rock element of like kind of F yeah. the man kind of. Um, yeah. But they talked about how the guy, the main guy talked about how they wanted to build this big skate park and they raised the money in the community and the taxes in a town and stuff like that. And by the time it got built, it was just a shitty, like, ramp and like one like cement thing and a paved area and they're like wait a minute right. we raised like a million and a half dollars for the skate park and and how everyone just takes their cut you know the the contractor takes their cut and the mm -hmm. planner and this the city councilman and the you know and so anything and that's one of the reasons why it's 
it's ugly by and large, you know, it's mm -hmm. because everything is skimmed off of. So like yeah. the, air, the airport was like the most hideously ugly airport uh. I've, I've ever seen, but it's just, everyone profits, everyone takes their, everyone takes their cut. So there isn't that faith in government. The government does not have your back. The government is actually out to get you and trying to fleece you. It's funny how, you know, we talk about government a lot kind of in the abstract of these types of things, but it really is striking when you, when watching your show, you're right. How much just a simple thing of how a place is governed just affects culture in so many ways mm. of just the average person's life. You wouldn't think of it like that. You think it's more, you know, it's this other thing. I don't even know. I don't even have the right words for it, but it, yeah. that really hit me, uh, in, in a way which I had never thought of it like that because there were so many people, I mean, it affected the entire culture in both of those instances, you know, in a profound way. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. You, it's, it's one of the, um, you know, it's, it's interesting when we went to Ghana and West Africa, they're very optimistic and Ghana is mm -hmm. one of the most effective governments in Africa and as especially in West Africa, they still, the mm -hmm. Ghanaians really have big problems with their government, but right. they feel like they've had a stable democracy since 1990 okay. and which is a long time for that area of Africa. Absolutely. Yeah. And effective democracy, multi-party system, uh, effective like taxation. They've, there's, you go to Ghana, there's freeways and off ramps and shopping malls and skyscrapers. Mm -hmm. And um, not that that is, something to get excited about, but it's no, not. But you said hope. Yeah. People have something that they're doing together that, yeah. you know, is promising and that type of thing. Yeah. And they feel like Ghana is a leader of Africa and a leader of West Africa and is kind of showing the way. And they believe that their, their kids and grandkids are going to have a way better life than they had. And that mm -hmm. the future is looking bright and the Ghanaian people are so uh, optimistic and loving and warm and, and, and hopeful it was really, it was really touching to see. And I just really hope for the very best for them. And when you, your last episode was back in America, right? Yeah. Back in LA. Yeah. Now, so after having gone on that journey, <laughs> like, were you able to view this place with different eyes? Were you kind of looking at it a little differently? Did it hit you a little differently the way people were acting and everything or... I haven't seen I haven't seen that episode yet, so I don't know what happened. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because this show is part personal for me. Like Rain mm -hmm. Wilson is going on his journey to right. try and learn about happiness, and it's also sociological. You know, I want to share my findings with the viewer, and you know, I it's one thing to go and wash elephants in Thailand and row down a river in, in Ghana mm -hmm. and with fishermen and, um, you know, go hiking in Iceland and go dancing in Bulgaria. Like it's easy to find happiness, but what do you yeah, do when you're back in like, your it's house? It's like a field trip. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So how do you find it? And, you know, one of the things that we, the, the producers did is like, for instance, we had a segment where I met these uh, pinata makers in East LA that were like third mm -hmm. generation pinata makers. And, they had such a beautiful culture and community that was really embedded with Angelino, Angelinos, Hispanic Angelinos, right. and um, uh, and 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 what a pinata was, and Mexican culture and heritage, and they had such a. It, 
LA is a big, ugly morass <laughs> and a, a cultureless void. And at the same time, when you dig deep and you go into the culture of the real culture of LA, you see yeah. some real community there. Absolutely. And it was, it was really nice to dig into some of those communities. And, and also I had a wonderful interview with this woman, Ari Meyer, who's an old friend of mine. And she was a sitcom star in the 90s and early 2000s. She was in the show Kate and Alley um, and some other TV shows and Nickelodeon and, and making a really good living as an actor. And then mm -hmm. she's just like, I don't like this and I'm going to go be a nurse. And she went to nursing school mm -hmm. in her 30s or even early 40s and um, went to go change bedpans and work in hospitals and you know, clean up poop and change sheets and take care of people. Wow. And, you know, probably for a third or a quarter of the income and she loves it. She's so happy and balanced. Don't and, figure. um, yeah, it was a really beautiful story to tell like, Oh, we are so, it's so easy to just get sucked into the show business vortex, Larry. Oh, absolutely. In that bubble, you know, mm, uh, yeah. it was interesting. Cause I thought the pandemic um, you know, people talked about there's a lot of PTSD after the pandemic and that sort of thing. Just from your personal observation, do you think the pandemic made a lot of people unhappy or do you think it just exposed a lot of unhappiness? You know, that was mm. probably lurking there. <laughs> yeah, I think some of both. I mean, I think that's very well said. I think, I think, listen, the, the number one thing I found in Geography of Bliss is not any great revelation. It's pretty mm -hmm. darn obvious. And that is people thrive in connection and in community. Yeah. You yeah. know, communities keep us happy. Families, loving groups, friendships, that's what nourishes our souls. No matter where you go in the world, when groups of humans are together, if they're uh, collaborating, if they're singing, if they're in mutual service to one another, they're happy. Uh, mm. And when they're cut off, they're not. So I do think a lot of people mm -hmm. got cut off. I worked really hard during the pandemic to stay connected. Like I would get groups of friends and we would have Zooms and I would go take beach walks with people at a healthy six foot distance. And, you know, I, I worked really hard on it, but I think for a lot of people, they got really isolated. So that yeah, was I true. So too. But I also mm. heard that, and I don't know this, but I, I heard that there were a lot of like marriages falling apart because yeah. people that just kind of like were in denial about the fact that their marriage was kind of pathetic. All of a sudden they're mm. stuck in a house together for month <laughs> after month. And that, I know. That, yeah. And the fractures start to show and it starts to fall apart. Um, yeah. So I think there was some of that as well. I think it exposed some stuff that was already there. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. When did you write Soul Boom and what was the impetus for that? Um, I heard you say that you lost your father recently. 
Yeah. So, um, that was one of the impetuses. I mean, I've always I'm been very sorry, by the way. Oh, thanks. It was about three mm-hmm. years ago. It was during early mm-hmm. months of COVID and he yeah. needed a heart bypass operation and he oh, just man. had, had too much deterioration in mm-hmm. his arteries to withstand the, the surgery. And, and um, I've always been interested in spiritual topics uh, and life's mm-hmm. biggest questions about why we're alive the meaning of life. Do we have a soul? Is there a God? What happens when we die? You know, what is consciousness? All of that big question, the big ticket items I've always been very interested in. And um, so when COVID landed, I was like, well, here's an opportunity for me to, you know, to write down a lot of the stuff I've been thinking about, reading about, researching over the decades, really. And, um, so it was kind of my COVID project and, you know, I worked on it for, for three years off and on really. And, um, it just came out last month in the book. Are you searching for, uh, spirituality in the book or it's not searching for spirituality, but are you talking about enlightenment and that sort of thing? What is the, what is the focus of it? Well, I bring an analogy up in the first couple chapters between mm-hmm. two television shows. So I try and have, it's a funny book too. I try and make it fun and readable. And, and the analogy has to do with two of my favorite shows from the seventies, uh, Kung Fu and Star Trek. Did you ever watch Kung Fu back in the day? Oh yeah, absolutely. If you snatch the pebbles from my hand, time for you to leave. (laughs) It's time for you to leave. Um, so Kung Fu is about, for those who haven't seen it, is about Kwai Chang Kane, um, a Shaolin monk who's trained in martial arts but is also yes. trained in kind of Eastern wisdom. And then he has to leave the monastery and he goes in because it's the 1860s. He's wandering around the old West. So this Shaolin monk is wandering around. Uh, and it's David Carradine playing this. Yes. This, the, uh, the quote yes, unquote okay. Chinese guy. Yes, this, exactly. I just fun, wanted to <laughs> fun, fun fact is that um, Bruce Lee actually developed the idea. And, oh, wow. um, and then they stole it from him essentially and didn't cast him and they cast a white dude to play a Chinese dude. Um, cause that's Hollywood. Cause that's and, how they do. Um, mm. so, but he has to battle racist cowboys and aggressive people and greedy folks and violent people. And he tries to calm them down with his Eastern wisdom mm-hmm. and, um, and he occasionally gets in some ass kicking fights with his Kung Fu. And I, I draw this as a parallel to a personal spiritual journey that we might all take. We're mm-hmm. all Kwai Chang Kane. We're all seeking to become more wise and more peaceful, more serene. And we have our personal tests. We're being beset by our own version of racist cowboys and, you know, <laughs> a, a, aggressive miners and, in violent people and stuff like that. And so we have to go about our day seeking mm-hmm. to be spiritual beings, walking a very difficult path as human beings. The other analogy I draw is to, to Star Trek, which is at first blush, not a spiritual story at all. Right. But, um, but it, it really is because it's about, um, 
uh, humanity has fixed all its problems at home. The reason that mm -hmm. we can boldly go where no man has gone before and seek out new life and new civilizations is because we fixed everything at home. There's no more right. race. There's no more racism. Like the first interracial kiss happened on, on Star Trek. Um, and it was banned on dozens of Southern uh, television stations at the time. Yeah. Um, and racism has been solved. Income inequality has been solved. Sexism has been solved. We, we relish the diversity of humanity, you know, and I love that as a kid, you know, mm -hmm. Sulu was there and there were Russian and Ohura and the, everyone was beautiful <laughs> yeah. and diverse right. and, and loving. And, and then, so what is humanity then able to do? We're, we're able to explore space because we've got our problems fixed at home. And mm. so this is like the other aspect of the spiritual journey, which is humanity becoming more mature and wise and kind and, and seeking, um, God forbid world peace. Um, mm -hmm. and we all have a role to play in making the world a better place for all 8 billion of us. Some of us might be social activists. Some of us are entertainers and storytellers. It doesn't matter who you are. You can be a school teacher or school bus driver. We all can play a part in making the world better. And that's really more about what my book is about. So I, I have a chapter on death. I have a chapter on consciousness. I have a chapter on God. I have a chapter on sacredness. Um, hmm. Well, that's interesting. What, let's talk about that. What do you mean by sacredness? I love that word. Well, what so, does that mean? Yeah, I am a member of the Baha'i faith. Mm -hmm. And I once went um, a while back on what is called a Baha'i uh, pilgrimage. So we went to the Baha'i Holy Land in Israel and we wandered around these holy sites and we um, prayed and meditated and contemplated. And it was people from all over the planet. There's people from the Philippines, from Italy, mm -hmm. Romania, you name it. And um, we saw these sites where, you know, holy people were buried and there were beautiful gardens and everything was about the sacredness of the spots that we were visiting. And then, mm. And then just much like in Geography of Bliss, then I came back home to Los Angeles and I'm like trying to chow down a sandwich and I'm on the phone in my car and mm -hmm. trying to get on a Zoom meeting and it's been rescheduled and, you know, stub my toe and, you know, have to take a poop and life gets very, <laughs> it gets complicated and yeah. unsacred and just kind of, so the, the chapter is a kind of a contemplation on what have we lost by not having the sacred in our lives? Mm, and, interesting. Um, and what would it feel like to resacralize um, aspects of our lives? You know, I mentioned the, the bench where I pray and meditate outside my window here. And mm -hmm. to me, like that's a sacred space because it's a space that most mornings I'm there, I'm under a beautiful tree. I'm in mm -hmm. the sunlight. I'm, you know, in deep contemplation. And so it has a specialness to me, you yeah. know, we have such a split culturally between like church going folk and mm -hmm. secular city folk, right. church going folk, you know, what's sacred to them is churches and the city mm -hmm. folk have don't want anything to be sacred because it has to do with the church. And this has to do with like a left and right Democrat Republican divide that, um, but what have we lost culturally by not having mm -hmm. 
sacred spaces and what what could we learn from say like indigenous cultures mm-hmm. that have sacred forests and streams and mountains and um and stories interconnected with those sacred places yeah there are a couple of things in there that i want to ask you about so spirituality see, yes there's definitely a couple of roads some people find spirituality through religion some people maybe through enlightenment you know mm-hmm. which could be a secular and religious uh thing um but um sacredness is interesting because as you're saying that to me it this is what it feels like to me that the it feels like the modern world is more comfortable as a whole i'm generalizing here with sacred being archaeological you know with Mm. the you know, as long as it was 2000 years ago, I'm fine with something being sacred, you know, mm, mm. <laughs> you know, but you know, there can't be like, I love when you say your bench can be sacred, you know, like we've lost the ability to have a specialness to, to contemporaryness, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, to have it hold special meaning to us. Like it has to be, it has to exist somewhere where we can put it in a, in a certain container and we don't have to really deal with it that much. Oh, yeah. Back in those days when God was smiting everybody, you know, you could have sacred things and and that could exist. But we're much too technologically advanced or much too sophisticated now to think that anything could be sacred. Come on. Give me a break. Right. It's interesting. I, I talk about this uh, Shinto uh, Japanese poet named Basho. He's like one of the most famous Japanese haiku poets. Mm-hmm. And... Basho would, in medieval Japan, wander around uh, just with his like begging bowl and backpack and his notebook, and he would go to a place, and there'd be like a shrine or a forest or a lake or something, and he would observe nature, and he would write a haiku, mm. and he would leave it at the shrine mm. and you know meditate or pray there and then move on shrine to shrine. And I talk about how integrated that was how beautiful that it involved nature there was no separation between nature art and worship in that act that everything when you went to a beautiful shrine on a lake like you're watching the crane settle in the tree or you're watching a hummingbird Mm -hmm. and you're writing about it like nature sacredness poetry and the creation of art worship, prayer, meditation, the shrine, it's all integrated, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's where I would love to see humanity move toward is an Mm -hmm. integration of art, sacredness, religion, spirituality, and, uh, and, and especially with a connection to nature. And we're so disconnected from nature. And I do think Mm -hmm. nature, when I have felt the most intense sacredness for myself, it's been on a mountain or in a forest or on a hike or at the beach and uh, seeing the, the the magnificence and beauty of nature. What do you think it'll take for people to get a better connection with that, you know, in such a modern world where, you know, everybody's talking about AI today, 
you know, which is funny. My daughter and I were talking about this. How <laughs> I love how people have had this conversation. Now, you know, we thought robots were going to do all the grunt work. Now it looks like we're going to be doing the grunt work and the robots are the elite, you know, <laughs> writing this, writing the poetry, writing the scripts, you know, so, you know, writing songs. How did the robots become the elite and we became the grunts? Is that the future? That sounds for like a great science fiction movie where yeah. you have these elite uh, beautiful people writing yeah. poetry and playing the harp yeah. and eating grapes. And then we realize that they're androids. Yes, and that, they're the robots. And yes. all the slaves are like the, the actual Us. humans. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. we've lost connection with the, uh, with things like sacredness. You know, and what's it going to take? I mean, this is why mm. the book is called soul boom, why we need a spiritual revolution. And I, and I, you know, I outline some ideas around that, but I, I think mm -hmm. we need to, re-spiritualize and mm -hmm. it doesn't mean any ascribing to any particular religion necessarily right but we need to re-spiritualize um being a human being and how our systems work and mm -hmm. um and you know stuff like how we find sacredness uh because we mm -hmm. are so we're so hyper commercialized and consumerist and materialist that um you know, we're, we've just become disconnected and alienated and this goes back to happiness and it goes back to, you know, it goes back to happiness in the mental health epidemic. Um, you know, if we could find more deep connection to nature, to each other, we could find more well-being, and this might make a dent in the mental health issues that we're having. Do you, as an actor these days, Rain, do you search for material that is, has some of this in it or, you know, is it an unconscious thing? Maybe, are you, do you think you're drawn to these types of things nowadays? Well, yeah. I mean, this is, look at what I'm doing right now. I'm doing like, I'm writing a book on spirituality and I'm doing a reality yes, show about happiness. Yes, so, of course, and, yeah, you yeah. know, yeah, I mean, it is, it is what's really interesting to me. I mean, I would love, I would love to find roles as an actor where I get to mm -hmm, address stuff amazing. around, mm -hmm. you no, know, either mental health or spirituality or meaning. Um, and there are some, you know, great movies and works about that. Um, yeah. Uh, so I, that remains to be seen. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see. And I do think Larry, that coming back to the office, like, mm -hmm. like it ain't nothing, you know, it ain't nothing mm -hmm. that we made a show um, yeah. How many years were you on the show? Uh, I was there the first three seasons, or you could say two and a half. Mm -hmm. So from the from the beginning, back when it was good, then you left, and then it all yeah, fell. To sorry, shit. yeah, sorry, I don't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that some people say this. And Larry, I was looking at the show, and I noticed that when you left, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it started to unravel. Like, no, um, like, no, 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 no. It was a good show, but you know, making great. TV comedy, you've been a part of several of them. Uh, um, not easy. It, it's not easy and it's important and it brings people joy and it entertains mm -hmm. them in a positive and uplifting way, in a meaningful way. And, you know, we can't forget that. So That's right. being a part of the Star Trek kind of like, what is our duty yeah, toward, yeah. toward humanity, toward making the world a better place? Because spirituality is, it's, spirituality is not just about like, reducing anxiety and making yourself feel good and then mm -hmm. just 
living, being a workaholic, materialistic asshole, you know, yeah. in our relationship with other people, it's, it's about also giving back and being of service and, and I making, agree. having an impact. And so I, I hope to be able to do both. I like to do this kind of writing and these kind of shows, but I also want to, you know, if I could just make people laugh and uplift them and, uh, make quality content and tell really good stories, yeah. you know, uh, with diverse, interesting casts. And, uh, I think that would be, uh, that would be a great thing. Well, you have such incredible range, you know, and you have so many fans out there, including me. And, you know, I know people can't, can't wait to see your next character thing. That's for sure. You know, but, uh, in the meantime, we'll take whatever ring we could get, you know, and I think, uh, watching, <laughs> watching this show, uh, I think will will bring people a lot of joy and comfort. It's on Peacock right now. Is that is that what it is? Yeah, you got and you got some yeah. you got some Peacock stuff happening, right? I had a show called Wilmore and Peacock, and it's I think it's still on there. It was a election special. We did uh, twelve episodes that was special for election. I may do something like that for the next election. I like doing that kind of stuff. Oh, cool! That's fun. Yeah, we want to support the Peacock and get some folks to. Yeah. To subscribe. It's a good streaming service. That's where the office is. That's right. FYI. All the old Columbo episodes, you guys, for that alone. Columbo, come on. <laughs> I know. What and now you talk about, you know, geography of bliss, you know. Columbo gives me so much bliss watching yes. that show. Uh but uh, you know, uh, I'll say this too. I was really um happy that Jerry and Marge go large came my way. Um, and, uh, it's for a lot of these reasons. There were so many people who enjoyed that film because it made them feel good. Rain. Yeah. They, it wasn't cynical. It wasn't like, yep. you know, uh, ironic distance about this. It was very straightforward. It was earnest. How much, how many times do you see earnestness on the screen these yeah. days? You know, never. But people appreciated that. They're like, oh, my God, I was crying at this thing of of how, you know, they were caught up in that relationship between Jerry and Marge. And it was such a simple story. Yeah. And, and it was and it was a community coming together, yeah, trying a community to community coming together. Yeah. And uh, in despite their differences, yeah, you know, that's uh, right. uniting for the common good and. Uh, yeah, I, I had the same response. People were just really yeah. captivated by it. And it's like, hello, you know, streamers, networks, studios, this is the kind of, we want to do exactly. stuff. And it, and it wasn't treacly or sentimental. No, at the same not time. at all. I mean, not at all. Um, Brad yeah. Copeland did such a great script and, uh, Very nice. it had, it had, uh, just, it was just lovely, but it had a nice edge to it at the same time. And yes, it had enough of that. And when you have Brian Cranston and that Benning, come on. That helps. I mean, that, that helps, helps a lot. Yeah. yeah. But I would love to see more content out there. You know, it's something I try to do. It's not easy. Honestly, it's, you're like Sisyphus, you know, pushing that rock up the hill. It's one of the yeah. hardest thing to do is to make that kind of content. Ironically, when it used to be what Hollywood made all the time, but you know, yeah. there's people out there trying. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah, man. Good. Well, it's so great connecting with you, Larry. And you too, um, Rain. I good appreciate seeing you your being face here. and having this conversation. And I hope <laughs> I our paths cross again very soon. Hope it absolutely will. Okay. Um, Geography of Bliss, you guys, on Peacock and go get Soul Boom. Uh Rain's uh latest book. You can find it wherever books are sold. And meanwhile, that's right. Rain Wilson, thanks for being on Black in the Air, my friend. Thanks for having me, brother. <laughs>